Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 264. Today is Sunday the 11th of February 2018 and this interview is with Nicole Bradford. Nicole's the CEO and founder of the Willow Group, leading in personal transformation and well-being. She's also executive director and co-founder of the Transformative Technology Lab at Sofia University Palo Alto, the world's first transpersonal university. In this far-reaching conversation with Nicole, we discuss the transformative powers and potential of tech and games, whether tech is the problem or the solution to our problems, tech etiquette, and much more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So, hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. This is a call I have been looking forward to having. So, Nicole Bradford, welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Great to have you on the show. I have a, uh, so my knowledge of you, Nicole, is thanks to our great mutual friend, Rod Banner, over at Joytech and, and other innumerable wonderful things. So, Nicole, you are the CEO and founder of the Willow Group, which is leading in personal transformation and well-being. You're also the co-founder with Jeffrey Martin of the Transformation, sorry, the Transformative Technology Lab uh, at the Sofia University in Palo Alto. And, and, uh, and you seem to be up to really what's most important in life and in this world. So, Nicole, in your better words, how would you describe what you do and, um, and what's your mindset these days? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I've also been looking forward to this call. You know that I love our conversations and they, they, they tend to go very wide ranging. And so I'm just really thrilled to be here. Um, so what we do with TransTech, and I'll start there and then just say what my mindset is because it's tied together. TransTech is tech for mental health, emotional well-being, and human thriving. And so at its most basic level, it's using technology to support the psychology of humans. And that ranges from tech for for mental health, or we call human support, so that's stress, anxiety, depression, or tech to support the human condition, so helping people with compassion, empathy, connection, self-awareness, meaning-making, and there's tech that can be used for all of that. And then the far side is exponential well-being, so that's using tech to actually expand the mental and emotional capacity of humans. And so that includes everything from brain-computer interfaces to um, people who are using tech to expand emotionally what people are capable of feeling and connecting uh, with one another. And so that is the overall landscape for trans tech. And what my mindset specifically is, is one, I'm an explorer. And, uh, and I would say two, I have a, a growth mindset. And um, what's exciting to me, and why trans tech, I think is so important, is that the world is in the middle of great change right now. Um, much of it brought on by technology and behind any new tech that's developed, whether it's AI or, you know, nanomaterials or, you know, anything having to do with space, 
there's humans on the other side of it. And so, you know, I believe that our greatest problems, or our greatest challenges are not technical, they're actually human. And so, you know, really working on how do we overall, how do we increase the overall level of um, mental and emotional health and well-being of humans so that as new technologies come online, we're able to use them, you know, wisely um, and, you know, for the benefit of all mankind. So that is what drives me. Um, so it's a combination of an explorer and, um, you know, and a grower. Hmm. So it seems if I had to rephrase it in some level, it's about using technology to improve humanity, whether you are in a, a darker space and you need to grow out of that or move out of that, or you are into a perfectioning and a hugely exponential area, you're already hugely positive and you want to do even more and be even better for the future. Yes. So, um, I mean, in the end of the day, as you allude to at some level, you could say that technology is part of the problem. I mean, do you have a, do you have an, how negative opinion do you have about technology? I mean, to the, or if I put it another way, how negative opinion do you have about humanity's ability to use technology in an appropriate manner? So I have a slightly different point of view than many people on this. I don't think technology is bad. I think the problem is that it's not good enough. You know, and so I think that, you know, the, the way that we are, if you look at the major shifts uh, or the, you know, the major surges in technology for mankind, um, you know, the length of the pre-industrial revolution, the length of the industrial revolution, the advent of the information revolution, um, these cycles have been getting shorter and shorter. So this thing that we feel very complicated with when most people think about the problems with technology, specifically like social media and how we use our phones, it's actually we've only had those for a few years. That's a very young, you know, we're, we're like kids. We've just started. And so I think that the problem is not that the technology is bad, but that one, it's not good enough. Two, we don't have the etiquette around it. Three, we haven't really decided how we want it to integrate into our lives. One of my favorite quotes is by Joe Ito from uh, MIT Media Lab. And one of the things that he, it's a beautiful quote. He says that a um, hundred years from now, technology will be indistinguishable from nature. Hmm. You know, and, and I think that that's a, I think that's a, a I think that's a great target. Um, like, I think that, you know, our phones and screens, it's one of the worst human experiences ever. Like, we really have to get get rid of screens. That doesn't mean get rid of technology, but get rid of screens. And we have to understand, you know, what, how we feel about things. I think a good example that is less threatening for people is it's like the very first time you've had tequila or the very first time you've had chocolate cake. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, I overdid those two things. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. Now I, I now I have a lot more moderation. Well, well you're you know? good. You've gotten wiser. <laughs> I'm sure I could do some more of that. <laughs> and technology is the same thing. We just have to grow up. And then that circles back to, um, you know, raising the overall mental and emotional skill level of humans, um, you know, as a, being a part of the growing up process. Hmm. In, in, in a cynical rebuttal, I'm 
tempted to think that with Joito's comment, the 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 hundred years from now, maybe that's because there is no nature left. The way we go about things. So it, 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 the the reason my my level of investigation is more about your perspective on humanity's goodness, because the tech may not be good enough, but is humanity good enough to deal with the tech? Right. Well, I I you know that's a that's actually a non tech question, really. Right. Of course. You know, and um, I do believe. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a humanist, romantic. Uh, I'm a humanist. Um, I'm a romantic, um, and I'm also progressive. Uh, to use like the big categories that uh, Yuval Harari talks about in Sapiens, sure. I am those three things, and so I do believe that uh, I do believe in the fundamental uh, nature of humans. Um, I think that humans are um, well. I think humans basically long. To be loved, um, to belong. Well, they long to belong, to belong, and that probably is where love comes from. Um, you know, we long to belong. We long to be connected. Uh, you know, we long for um, transcendence. Um, you know, and we long to feel connected to that, not only to one another, but to that wider, invisible um, something that. Um, you know, shows up in many of the world's religions, but also at raves, also at concerts, uh, that moment, um, you know, when you are with your friends or your loved one, um, and you get this sense there's something more. I think human beings long for that. And I think, I actually think the world's religions came out of that longing, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, that feeling being created by them. I, that's who we are. And I think also what reinforces that or where it comes from, from a biological standpoint, is that, you know, certainly there's a survival of the fittest. Um, but that's only one element of humanity. Also, every human who is here today had an ancestor who was really great at um, connecting with other people because, you know, pre-industrial revolution or really in the last, you know, or pre-agriculture, um, you know, any any solo human was pretty much a dead human. You know, it's mm-hmm. only really been recent in the, you know, the history of humanity that people could live on their own. Um, and so as a result, we've got mirror neurons, we have a ton of biology that is all about um, connecting with one another. And so I think you know, what is exciting about the next chapter of technology is I'm really interested in um, technology that amplifies our um, our um, altruism, our desire to be connected, truly connected to one another. I don't consider Facebook a connection device. Um, you know, I think it's it, it yet again is something that falls way short. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I think there's some very interesting things coming like anything there's, you know, there's a dark side uh, potential for everything, but, you know, to circle back to your very first point about, you know, is humanity good enough or, you know, the technology and all of those things, we are most certainly in the crunch. I think the next 15 years is one of the things that motivates me tremendously. I think the choices we make and the, growth that we have as humans 
over the next 15 years, which in tech terms is, you know, like 100, mm-hmm. um, will determine whether or not the, the future for our children will be more like Starfleet or more like Hunger Games. You know, like we are in the crunch because mm-hmm. a lot of it, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are happening right now in terms of what's going on with the environment, what's going on with AI and the change in the nature of work. Um, and then the fundamental really big thing is that with jobs um, transforming or changing into whatever comes next, we are going to be spending more time being rather than doing. Humans will spend more time in their heads because there's going to be less factory jobs. There's going to be less, you know, of the you know robots and software are going to be doing a lot of things that people do today. And um, humans are not great at being. We're not great at being inside of our heads. Our educational system, there isn't anywhere in the world really there where there's an entire system dedicated to teaching humans how to discover who they are, how to communicate, how to connect. We expect all of that to be taught by the culture, and there isn't any culture that teaches it. And with the, you know, with the, um, the, the decline in membership in many of the world's religions, or, you know, all around the world, if you look at all of the data on trust, People no longer trust governments. They no longer trust the economy. They no longer trust the media. They no longer trust religious institutions. They don't trust that education, you know, will necessarily, you know, make them safe. Um, And so all of these historical bastions of meaning making, uh, people don't believe in them in the same way that they used to. And those were also the places that sort of like if anyone was teaching you know, how to be, those are the places that taught how to be, but we don't believe in them anymore and we don't have any replacement. Um, and so we're in the crunch, but I'm incredibly optimistic because I do believe in the fundamental, uh, nature of human beings wanting to belong and connect and transcend, um, and to be together. Hmm. Uh, and so I think if we, you know, work on amplifying that, we have a very good odds of having a future that is more Starfleet and less, um, Hunger, games. Hunger Games. When one looks at the things that technologies can be helping on, we've talked to the, about the ability to improve our compassion and to improve empathy, as these are skills that one can learn. And yet, and, and you know, I, I looked at one of your interviews, and you've had, you have many which are fascinating, and I'm going to put links into them. But you know, you say you're at the intersection of neuroscience, behavioral science, psychology. And tech, and 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 one of the things you also are keen to point out is that depression is at it's is at one of the highest levels, and and I think you say it's going to be the the largest disease by the year twenty thirty. Is there not some kind of relationship, or why? How do you explain why depression has become so big in a world where we want to be connected, belonging, beloved, uh, and and where is technology part of this problem or not? Well, it's. I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, there's a, a. Have you seen some of the articles on this new book that's come out called Lost Connections? Uh, no, 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 no. But I'm going to put it's a note. So interesting. I, I haven't read it, the book yet, but I've read several interviews with the author. So I, I, I haven't had a chance to really dig into um, the, uh, you know, his research and the basis of everything. But he did make an interesting point, 
which was the, um, well, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. He talks about going to Vietnam and um, talking to a group of elders, and they were describing that one of the people in their village was depressed. And he said, well, you know, what did, and then they said they put him on antidepressants. And so he thought, well, maybe they gave him some drugs or they, um, or they put him on an herbal remedy. And he, he was like, well, what was the antidepressant? And they said, well, we bought him a cow. Oh, yeah. I, I have heard about that. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think part of what's what's driving depression, um, there's there's a there's a couple of things. Uh, one, it's our definition of depression. And that number, by the way, is the world economic, I mean, the World Health Organization's estimate. Mm-hmm. So I think one is our definition of depression. Um, I think one piece is the interconnection um, that people have, um, you know, we are, we're really not living in community the way that we, you know, that we once did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that not being in community, which happened, started to happen long before, um, you know, technology as people think of it today, you know, single family homes and, you know, young people living on their own and all of these things like that's been a trend in our in our species for a while, um, and it might not be what it's cracked up to be. Uh, um, so people are lonely. I think that contributes to it. And then the last part is a, you know, a sense of um, agency and progress. You know, um, you know, it's it's uh, agency, control, progress, people feeling like their life is moving in a direction um, that makes sense for them. And so, you know, there's a great deal of change that we've talked about before. And so I think all those three things together is what's really, you know, driving um, the depression numbers um, all, all together. And so I don't think it's necessarily technology, you know, because this like in the U.S., this idea that, you know, every family should have a, a house of their own and that young people move out at 18 and They don't live with their parents and, you know, and, you know, the elder care system in the U.S. where everyone sort of warehouses their elderly, Um, you know, all of that pre-technology. And that is definitely impacting how people feel. So at some level, Nicole, I'm thinking you need to run down your high street somewhere because you're not that far compared to where I live and and go see um, Mr. Zuckerberg and, and explain to him that Facebook should be converted into not just connections, but making cows uh, come into her house, in her, her house. <laughs> yeah, the, um, yeah, the, like, what's the equivalent of the cow? You mm-hmm. know, like this guy was, um, that specific guy, he had um, lost his leg from stepping on a landmine mm-hmm. and he was still a rice farmer. And so when he would go out into the rice paddies, he was terrified, mm. you know, like his, his life situation was terrifying to mm. him. And, um, and then when he got the cow, he also became the center of his community because everybody came by for milk. So he got an amp in his connection and he, you know, took out a experience. He took out being exposed daily to an experience that terrified him and reminded him of, you know, this loss that he had. So it makes total sense. So like, what is the equivalent of, you know, increasing, 
you know, interconnection, uh, which, you know, technology can actually help with, like, how do you find the people that are into what you're into? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, you know, and then also helping people identify what is going on for them so that then they can make choices about it. Mm. You, you mentioned education before, and uh, we've talked about these devices, which we're, we're just children with because they're new. And then there's tech that could be invented that could improve our situation. I, mean, I think that in education, we've got a long way to go because um, you can see how tech is so disruptive within education. And then there's now tech, ed tech, and, and what, how Education can be transformed through uh, through devices, but I, one of the things that really drives me bonkers, and and it's so global and yet different culturally per country, is the way people are using tech. You know, whether it's the two romantic people at a dinner table with their bloody iPhones in their eyes, mm-hmm. or, or or kids that aren't communicating, but you know, all six of them in a cabin, they're just all looking at and laughing at, and then occasionally showing, hey, here's a joke, but then back on their screen and or someone in the street who's only looking at their tech and bumps into people and or someone in the train who's speaking out loud on their phone. I mean, gosh, the number of examples are just mind-boggling and it feels like that. I mean, not only does that lead me go be bonkers, but I, 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 somehow I feel like we're not connecting, we're disconnecting despite mm-hmm. the connection. I agree. I agree. I um, absolutely. I think all of that is, um, you know, bad tech etiquette, and then people not realizing how, um, people not understanding um, how the brain works and how, um, you know, addiction or attention works, and then companies designing specifically for a single metric, you know, like. The thing about the thing about uh, Facebook and YouTube and you know all of these companies is that they're uh, they're simple optimizers. So there's really a, there's a fantastic article by a guy named Joe Edelman uh, who is on the he works with the Time Well Spent Group, which is now the Institute for Humane Technology, and he was also the um, he was also, I guess, the the guy who established the metrics for couch surfing, mm-hmm. and um, they had a happiness metric um, a long time ago. And so he's done this. He's a designer, and he's done this very thoughtful, thought provoking article on what a simple maximizer or a simple optimizer as an algorithm looks like versus a values based optimizer. And so I think. You know, the um, one of the reasons why people are so consumed by being on their phones and all of these things is that the metrics of the design for the software and the hardware is about simple optimization. So YouTube only cares about how many hours you spend watching YouTube. That is their only metric is hours spent. So as a result, they don't care or... They don't um, review or they, they, they really don't do a content pass other than, um, 
you know, truly, truly inappropriate things. They're not really even good at doing that. Um, and they didn't become good at it because they don't care. They have one metric, how many hours you spend. But in a values-based optimizing system, it's, you know, the hardware and software, finding out what you want, truly want, um, and what's important to you. Like, uh, it would be the difference between if you go to YouTube to, you know, to watch a guitar lesson, um, it's the difference between saying, okay, you watch, you watch this video for an hour and repeated it 10 times. Um, that's a simple max, simple optimizer, but a values based optimizer would be, um, I want to, you know, this person is coming or, or me saying, I want to learn how to play the guitar so I can serenade the person that I'm in love with. Or I want to learn how to play the guitar so when I go to this, you know, when I go to my, um, on a camping trip with my friends, we can, you know, we can sing songs together. Um, and then these systems being dedicated to helping you, um, you know, learn how to connect better, learn how to, you know, play the guitar for the things that you want to. And so I think, you know, what's good about um, all of the, what's good about the, all of the, the issues that people are raising today is that it, I think it's accelerating us towards getting to this next level of how tech supports us. Like our tech really truly needs to be on our side. And so with people walking down the street, talking loud, all of these other things, that is not tech on our side. Um, and so that's what I think is coming. Mm. And I think when that stuff gets here, um, I think that the user experience, the way people, you know, when it truly supports you so that you can have feelings of connection, progression, community, like real community, interconnected community, I think those products will be so much better than the products that we have today that, you know, everyone will have to come up to that next level. Hmm. Um, but we have to decide that's what we want. We're the designers, you know, of this, like we design it humans. So we have to des decide that that is what we want and, you know, put in standards and people choosing with their, you know, people making choices with what, with what they do and what they don't do, et cetera. Well, so I have a perspective on that. And of course, I, I love the idea of changing the metrics to be more humanistic and maybe more progressive. Yet, one of the biggest types of metrics we're all going to have to pay in the piper is the financial one. And I would argue that while you and I may be uh, preaching to the converted, the issue at some level is we need to get Wall Street, venture capital, PE, uh, decision makers uh, and the investors in them on board as well because if the metric you know number of eyeballs watching the number of hours on YouTube leads to number of clicks and ads being spent and so on and so forth then that metric is going to pay you know is going to be so much more all encompassing than you know how much happier it makes people yeah um, I mean I, I agree with you completely that um, that the like the financial metrics have to change, but I think there are there are more and more people who um, are willing to. Well, I guess this this is what underlies my belief. I think that um, you can create um, sustainable, profitable businesses um, that fulfill these 
these characteristics. And, and the reason why I think those businesses need to be profitable is so that they can employ people who can then, you know, pay for their mortgages and send their kids to, you know, schools and um, those types of things. So I, I actually really believe in business and entrepreneurship, but it doesn't have to be, you know, purely when to your point, when it's like purely profit maximizing, um, then it leads to people making um, very uh, making certain choices. And it isn't just profit maximizing. It is short term versus long term as well. That this let's let's call that a big topic and let's park it for a second because anyway that's one I'm very keen on and hopefully we'll have lots more discussion about that because at the end of the day that has to be part of the equation going forward. But I want to spend the last couple of minutes that we have together, Nicole, on uh, something that you are an expert on and, and something I know very little about, which is the world of gaming. So you mm. have uh, such a sensational background in gaming. Uh, participating on the World of Warcraft and and working in China for them, I mean, gosh, which boggles my mind. In 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 that gaming is such an important part of people's and especially younger people's lives. How do you see games being effective in transforming people? I mean, just give us a, some sort of insights as to what goes on in games that need what needs to happen in games to be effective in transmission, in transformation? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm super excited about AR and VR uh, for uh, games and for transformation. And um, the reason why is that, you know, gaming is probably one of the, it's one of the most powerful engagement media. It also allows people to play together. And um, I was looking at a really interesting study the other day that basically was, it, I mean, it's when I say it, it's going to be obvious, but, um, you know, people are far more rigid in abstract. Um, but when people have an experience together, even if it's something as simple as play, then they become less rigid about their belief systems about other people. Now, this doesn't include, like, you know, the horrible... Um, you know, the, the horrible trolling that happens in certain games, uh, you know, certain like shooter games and that kind of thing online. But there's actually lots of, there's so many types of games. Um, and like many people think that most gamers are males and that's not true. Mm -hmm. It depends on what platform you're on. But, you know, there's a lot of women who play, most of the people who play are actually in their twenties and older. Um, you know, and there's a, so it's an incredibly powerful medium. Um, I think some of the things that are going to lead to transformation between these two mediums um, is that, like, I think, um, I think hyper-realistic uh, avatars in VR um, are going to uh, actually be quite helpful because people behave differently when they're in front of someone than when they're on a very flat experience. So people are yelling at each other on Facebook because they're really kind of yelling at a wall. Mm -hmm. So there's a higher level of bad behavior. But if I'm looking at you, even if it's your avatar and it's a hyper-realistic avatar, and I say something to you in a VR space, uh, whether it's a game or a conference room or whatever, and I can see that little wince, you know, that shows that I've said something to you that is hurtful. Um, I think that... Um, I think that that will bring a return to how people actually 
treat one another when they're in person. So I'm a, like, I'm a big advocate for hyper-realistic um, VR avatars because I think it'll be like being in person. Um, and that, of course, doesn't replace in person. I think, you know, one-to-one human connection is the most important thing. But, you know, um, a lot of our digital um, town squares where people who are not, you know, physically proximate to one another are still interacting with strangers um, to have a hyper-realistic avatar uh, will bring back um, the, you know, higher level behavior that happens when people are actually looking at someone um, and they realize that they're actually, you know, dealing with a real person who has real hopes and dreams and, you know, and who has had real suffering because we all suffer in this life on some level or another. Um, so there's that. And then on the AR side, um, I think that there are, um, here's another thing that I think that is a little bit different than most people. Um, I think that the boundary between digital and physical is, um, kind of artificial and outdated and we should get rid of it. And the reason why I say that is I think that, you know, like when you talk to younger cohorts, they don't really see a difference. It's, you know, people in our age group that like have this hard boundary between the two. And I think keeping that, maintaining that hard boundary actually makes us prioritize the physical less. I think if we just say it's one world, some of it's digital, some of it's physical, but it's the same place. I think that will allow us to fall in love again with the real world, with the physical world. Um, And so what augmented reality allows for is that we actually already have a data layer around the world um, that is, you know, formed by our our phones and all the Wi-Fi hotspots and, you know, everything. It's almost like like it's there, but we just can't see it. And um, I think what's interesting specifically about games and AR is that I think that there are some structures in games that are better than the way that we currently do things in real life. And specifically, I'm thinking about the role-playing game structure. Mm -hmm. Um, In a role-playing game, you take your avatar, you take your character on a journey, uh, alone and with friends. Um, And in that journey, it is in part the hero's journey. You develop your avatar, um, and you have some really clear guidance on spaces that you might explore. Um, the term for that is talent trees or skill trees. And so you, you know, you kind of know what you're looking for. Um, and I don't think that that should be a ceiling, but I absolutely think that there should be a floor because today, you know, for a person today, especially for a young person today, it is so hard to know where to go and what to do and what to try and how to explore, to discover who you are, what you want to do and what your contribution will be and, you know, and, and how to learn how to make meaning. It is so hard and it is um, really inconsistent. Um, you truly have to be in the right networks. You have to have the right family and the right friends and that level of luck and chance on how people, you know, become healthy, happy, Uh, you know, adults who know who they are. Um, It's really, it's so inconsistent. I think one of the things that's really holding us back. So 
I'm really excited about, you know, the uh, migration of some, you know, well-developed digital structures into real life um, and that there, there's a blending of the two. Um, all along the way, though, um, I think that we have to be strong on privacy. We have to be strong on ethics. I think people need to be able to own their own data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things are really important. Um, and um, and the last thing I'm going to say <laughs> is someone asked me the other day, they were like, what do you think about, uh, what are your thoughts on Black Mirror? Hmm. And uh, my thoughts on Black Mirror are this, and this might be a little controversial, but um, science follows art. And so if you have a show that does nothing but talk about the scary future that technology brings, then everybody is terrified. When people are scared, their adrenaline kicks in, their cortisol kicks in, their ability to be creative, um, their ability to discover additional options to problem solve, um, that goes down the drain. Human beings become very zero sum or very linear because those, you know, those neurotransmitters, that biological element is all about getting you out of the path of danger. Um, and so it's really counterproductive. Like if, if the, if the producers of Black Mirror are listening to this, I would say, please make at least half of your of your shows about technology supporting us because then that's when you get people figuring out, okay, how do we make this? So what do we really need to do around ethics and privacy Hmm. um, to make this future a possibility right now? All they're doing is scaring people. Hmm. um, And that means that we're not, not, you know, problem solving individually or collectively. And so I think there's, yeah, I actually think it's a little irresponsible. Well, I guess uh, since I'm based in London, hopefully, maybe, you know, there's a possibility. But in, in and, and just to close off, Nicole, um, I have a friend called John Fortson who's uh, developed a short film called Rated. And there's a, there's a version in Black Mirror where they talk about how we're going to walk around with our stars that, you know, the, the rating we all carry on, you know, these various applications uh, running around of us visibly over our head as you and I are speaking. And uh, he's developing a uh, full-length feature film on the story. Uh, but yet he's really looking at also try to be the more the humanity within that and how we can all be better people. So hopefully John, uh, who I'll send this to, um, will be listening to what you say. So, um, Nicole. Awesome, yeah, because that, that just one thing on that, it's like, the rated thing, it's um, potentially, I, I don't know what he's doing, but in the Black Mirror episode, it was a really good example of a simple maximizing equation as opposed to like a values-based right. equation. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. This is our challenge. So as we move forward, we've got to instill more of this, imbue more of these value systems into these technologies and, and hopefully link that into the ESG, the Environmental Society and Governance type of measurements that will ultimately make people more money as well because that also makes the world tick. And so we're going to find this nice, beautiful ecosystem with uh, beautiful system technologies that are, have good user experiences. We've got our work cut out for ourselves, Nicole, have we not? We do. All right. So listen, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on. I loved having you on the show. It was a pleasure and look forward to continuing uh, on the journey with you. 
you know, you're, I just, I've just enjoyed myself so much. I, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too, Nicole. It's sure. Yeah, All right. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Okay. Bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly. We would paint a lover's portrait with all your favorite shades. best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, 
Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.